Once again, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. If you're at home, I'd like to welcome you as well and thank you for continuing as you were able to not give up meeting together. I spoke with an old friend this week out in the parking lot right over there as I came in one morning for about 30 minutes. He was uh, my mentor in the faith right out of college and, and, and is still in many ways my mentor, but um, he got this virus that's sort of been going around. We're not going to mention the name because you're tired of hearing it, but he, uh, he actually had to go in the ICU for seven days. And if you know this guy, he is a people person. He just wants to be with people all the time, hardly has any downtime. He's very active. He's a doer. And he said, Fritz, if you, if you ever thought you just wanted to be isolated and by yourself, just go in the ICU for seven days, where even there, because of that one, they hardly come in and check on you. He said, just try that for a little while. I said, well, did you, um, did you have any uh, dark nights of the soul? And he come to Jesus moments, and he said, absolutely. He, uh, he and his wife are in their early 60s, and they have uh, not only fostered a young girl, but have adopted her, and she's about five. And that little girl, Addison, loves him. Anytime I call, she's in the background. Daddy, Daddy, Papa, Papa loves him and he said his dark night of the soul was Jesus yes I want to be with you I'd love to be with you but it seems best that I stay here at least for Addison he said my church is at a point it doesn't need me we've got a great staff you know my kids don't need me the ones that are grown married having kids or working he said, my wife doesn't even really need me. And he said, the verse that really got him through was the one we're going to read, Philippians chapter 1, verse 22. I'm going to read the text starting at the end of verse 18. Yes, Paul writes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I, I will not at all be ashamed. But that with full courage now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Let's pray. 
Father, as we begin in many ways a new year for the church, with Sunday school starting back up, activities, men's and women's ministry, and as in many ways we start a new school year, Father, how we need to sort of come back to the point of it all. Would you show us that this morning? In Christ's name, amen. So uh, I've told you over the years about my mom and dad who we lost uh, in the last few years, but many, many years ago, uh, we had this sit-down conversation with them, and if you knew my mom and dad, you, they would love that I told you this story, Okay. But we were uh, sitting in their double-wide trailer. I was down there to speak at my old church's um, uh, homecoming. Hardest sermon I've ever preached, by the way. And they sat us down because they were so concerned about what happened when they died and what happened after that concerning their remains. And my dad, when he got serious about something, he got real serious. And my mother didn't get serious about a lot of stuff. She was always joyful and just happy and wanted to talk and chat it up. And, but she always wanted to be sort of in the middle of the conversation. And my dad really wanted to have this conversation. And he sat us down, and my wife and I were there, and we put on our serious hats, and we were paying attention. And, and he said, you know, my parents are buried in Ohio, and I'm in Arkansas, and no one is taking care of their, their gravesite. And if we're buried like that, who's going to take care of our gravesite? And so he went on this long explanation about cremation. And so my mother the whole time is sitting there just kind of leaning in, leaning in, wanting to speak, wanting to speak. And my dad goes on, and he's serious. And, and finally, my mother gets to speak. She's been holding this in, and, and she says, yeah, well, I, I, I want to be cremated too, and all I care about is that I'm put, I'm put in a urn. And my mother would always butcher words, just like I do. I get it from her, genetically. And so we're sitting there, and, and I can tell on my wife a little bit, she actually starts laughing first. She just starts kind of doing this. And I start doing this, and my dad's like, what are you doing? This is serious. And I'm thinking, but she said yearn. Yeah. Well, silly story. They would laugh at it today, I promise. But the question Paul is really getting at this morning is, for what do you yearn? What gets your heart going? For what do you live? What really gets you excited? What gives you life and meaning? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? And is it life-giving? In other words, what is your central, singular, governing passion? And yes, we're, Lord willing, going to start a whole new series next week. We're not doing it today for two reasons. One, I ordered the wrong commentary. I didn't come in until this past Saturday, so I was way behind studying. So I need at least another week, maybe two, but I think one. 
But the other thing is I thought as we're starting sort of this new year and it's so beautifully loud up there with kids and teachers and, and sort of, you know, ministries and we're adding and, and sort of growing some of our ministries and, and sort of this new season and almost kind of want to revisit our vision. What does it mean to glorify God and enjoy Him? I think this text gets to it. Do you want to glorify Christ? Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary, which I think was just a bunch of his sermons on this book, he describes seven different types of people and how they face this question. I think it's worth our time to look at them briefly, but he said, I want, I want to just note five of them, but give two quotes about two of them. He said, sort of the way we answer this question, the meaning of life and what is life all about is there's the Epicurean answer. Basically, I just want to find life in everything. I want to have fun and experience and adventure and excitement and just go on to the next thing. Then there's the Stoic. The Stoic just wants to endure, right? Just get through the day. Just got to get through this season. Uh, there's the Cynic. There's really no meaning to it. There's nothing, there's nothing that really gives me life. Then there's the Mystic. Well, Life is otherworldly. And again, that can be a Christian thing. They're, you know, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. We just kind of live in another world, whether it's a religious world or maybe it's gaming or Netflix. There's the humanist. Well, the reason I live is to do good to others, right? But the two that I thought were most interesting and probably applicable to us are what he calls the religious man and the average man. The religious man, he says this, there are some people, if you ask them what is life, they're bound to say that it means being religious and performing religious duties. That's real easy for us right now as we start a new religious season, right? He says there's a real danger being a minister with this. The danger is that that you will live on your own activity, speaking, preaching, being engaged in church work, and being very active about your religion, where your religion becomes your life. Then he says, the average man, and boy, I think this is us. He says, Christian people, members of Christian churches, if we were asked, what is living to you? What really constitutes life? What is the thing of all things to which you hold? Is it not true that many of us would have to admit and confess that it means our families, our homes, our work, our occupations, our activities in this life? Notice the word our, mine. Does not living often mean to many of us the companionship and love of our loved ones, our home life, our circles? These are precious things, yes, but often they become the thing. And when they are taken from us, our life, our world collapses and we have nothing left. The whole basis of our lives are gone. Have you felt that in your life? For my wife and I, it's been one kid going off to college at a time. 
incrementally God taking something we dearly loved and saying, what really do you love and live for? Paul says this in verse 22. For Paul, life was Christ. I want you to hear this over and over. To live is Christ. That Christ may be glorified whether we live or whether we die. And that the church has ample glory to what? To, to glory in Christ. For Paul to live as Christ. So I want you to think about this morning as we look at this text. What is life for you? What is it that if God took it away, you would feel like your life were gone? Fill in that blank. What is it that you cannot live without? For Paul, point one, to live is Christ. I want us to look at this first point under two subpoints: Paul's context and Paul's concern. First, his, con his context. The broader context of this book, and if you were around, oh, seven years ago, for the handful of you, you probably remember my great series through Philippians. Uh-uh, it was a terrible series. I didn't like it. Anyway, I want to preach that, this book again. I'm going to do it as one-liners, because there's so many great one-liners in here. And this is one, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But you probably don't remember that sermon series, nor the broader context, but it's basically this church that he's writing to in Philippi. And if you know anything about Philippi, it is in northern Greece. Okay? Uh, I've actually been three hours from there in a city called Volos. Beautiful, beautiful uh, coastal town when I was on a mission trip one time. Oh my goodness, it was a great mission trip. But if you remember from Acts chapter 16, you probably remember when this church was founded. Paul goes into Macedonia, goes into Philippi, and he meets this lady making purple cloths, right? Lydia. And she and these ladies are sort of doing this thing, and, and she's converted. And we assume that other women were converted as well. And then you remember the, the whole thing, he gets put in jail, in the Philippian jailer, which we alluded to earlier this morning. Well, that's Philippi. And Paul had a very close relationship with the church in Philippi. We think that he visited, scholars think that he visited, so therefore I think that he probably visited at least four times. And he talks at least two times in this book about this partnership in the gospel that he had with this church. Even in 2 Corinthians 8, you probably remember when he tells the church in Corinth this, he says, look, uh, I... I plead with you, Corinth, to give just like Philippi did. The churches in Macedonia, they gave out of their poverty, and they gave generously and joyfully. You can even see in some of the words used in Acts 16 or even in Philippians where, where they urge Paul to stay. They plead with him that they, they want to help him. There's this familial relationship with Paul and the church at Philippi. And then there's the immediate context. This is around 60 to 62 A.D. And look at chapter 1, verse 7. Where does it say Paul is right now? Where is he writing this book from? Where a lot of his letters were written from? Prison, right? Imprisonment, jail. 
That might be the only sermon you remember from that series because my daughter remembered it. It was my favorite one. It was called God is at Work, Paul is in Prison. God is at Work, Paul is in Prison. You got to wrestle with that if you're a Christian. But verses 12 through 14, if you back up a little bit, Paul, he's in prison, and yet he's seeing that through that he's able to share the gospel. And, he's, and the gospel is going forward even within the prison. And it's emboldening the church at Philippi to share the gospel. Like, wow, Paul's in prison. The gospel's going forward. We should probably share the gospel and trust this God. And what we're looking at today, it seems like Paul is about to face a trial, literally a trial before the Roman tribunal. He's going to be judged. He's going to stand before men and have to speak. And his concern is not, as we would think, to defend himself, his concern is that he could defend the honor of Christ. He wants the courage to speak and not be ashamed and afraid of the gospel. Verse 20, look at it again. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now and as always, Christ, there it is, will be honored. What would your concern be if you were in jail? How quickly can I get out? Do they have TV? Somebody start a protest and a boycott. This is unjust. You better believe it was unjust in Paul's case. And Paul doesn't care about himself. He cares that Christ would be honored. So much so, verse 19, he's saying, this is what I want you to pray for me. Notice this, he does not pray that he be delivered. He doesn't care. He prays that God, through their prayers, would give him the Holy Spirit to do what Jesus said would happen when you stand before men to be judged by them. Eugene Peter said, Peterson says about Revelation 8, the prayers of the saints going up to heaven and God hearing them and sending down thunder and lightning. He says, do you understand that that is the effectiveness of your prayers? That when you pray, God sends the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Then why do we struggle to pray if that's true? Paul's not praying for his deliverance. He's praying for the Spirit to have the courage and the boldness to stand before men, not to be saved. I don't know if you saw the video at the football game, but somehow some stray cat got in there and was dangling from one of the, the whatever those things are called, balconies, so to speak, hanging there about to drop. This is all on video, of course. And these smart fans, they have an American flag because of 9-11 at the game. They get the flag, and it drops, and they catch it. They save it, and everybody, of course, goes crazy cheering, and they, like, hold up the cat. Woo! Paul doesn't care where he lands. He didn't care if there's a flag to catch him or not. But 
he does care that Christ be honored. And notice he asks for help from the church in that regard. Because Paul's concern in a word, verse 20, is Christ. It's Christ. That Christ will be honored whether I'm exonerated and let go, or whether I'm executed. Because Paul sees deliverance in both senses. He says, if I'm executed, I'm delivered to be with Christ. If I'm exonerated, I'm delivered to go serve the church. And notice the word there for honor. It is the, it is the word for to make large. We would say made much of. John the Baptist would say that, that Jesus would increase. Or the teachers, as I poked my head and my ear into the two and three year old room this morning, the teacher was going, God is great! God is great! Can you say it? God is great! That is what Paul wants. Is to, the greatness of God that he sees that others would see that greatness. And then he says our verse in verse 21, he says it this way, because Paul's concern is Christ. For me to live is Christ. To live is Christ. Well, what does he mean by that word live? Well, you know, you know what he means for. It basically means what do you live for? What do you get up in the morning? What excites you? What is the ruling, governing passion of your life? What is the heartbeat? What do you love so much you live for? The, the word really, it really gets the idea of, of love. Think about it this way. What you love, you live for. Correct? What you live for tells you what you love. Jesus says, where your heart is, follow the trail there your treasure is. Jesus also says, follow the money trail. That'll tell you what you love and live for. What we can't imagine our life without. Listen again to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says it like this. Jesus, or Paul means our purpose in life. The things that give life real meaning. He is referring to how I spend my time, when I have leisure, what I read, what I think about. It is a characteristic of love that is always thinking about the object of its love. And whether we like it or not, that is true of every one of us. That is why this text comes as such a test. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he asks, what consumes us? What is our real interest? What is the thing we are anxious more and more and more about. For Paul, it was Christ. You may know the book The Hobbit, and you may know the character Gollum, and you may know his famous line about his precious. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. Christ is precious to me. Why? Because you think about Paul's life, because I know what we can think, well, that's the Apostle Paul, you know. But think about Paul. Paul was an apostle, yes. 
Paul did have this pretty amazing experience with God. But what we see in Paul's life is that he first had to die to all those other things. And that gets to our second point. For Paul to live as Christ, but something he experienced is to die is gain. See, Paul lived with this, what, what theologians call an eschatological orientation. And I don't typically like to use a lot of big words from the pulpit, especially unless I explain them. Big words are great in Sunday school. But eschatological is one of my favorite big words. It means future things. Paul lived with this future orientation. And we love that word orientation today, don't we? And we, we minimize it, that our life could be oriented around uh, sexuality or gender. Or like the, that is so minimalistic. Paul's saying, broaden your mind. Be open-minded, right? Look at your future. In chapter 3, verse 20, he says, we are citizens of heaven. We have one foot in this citizenship, and we have one foot in this citizenship. We indeed have a dual citizenship. The reason that Paul lived for Christ in this life was because he was consumed with Christ in the next life. He lived because he knew that he would be Christ with Christ forever. And that's why he says... It's, it's really better to die. This does not mean you have the right to take your life. Paul does not take his life. He leaves it in God's hands. But what he says is this. He says, to die is gain. That word means profit. Um, think about it this way. If you go over to chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, it's a pretty famous passage if you've been around the church. But it's that passage where Paul, again, he, these are the things Paul had to die to. And this is why, why Paul saw Christ as so glorious and exalted and so worthy of honor. Because everything else God took away. Paul said, whether it is my lineage, whether it is my race, whether it's, it's how eloquent I am, how gifted I am, my education, my righteousness, my morality, the way I parent my kids, the way I do marriage, the way I do, you know, take care of my dog. By the way, if righteousness stood according to how we take care of a dog, I'd be out quickly. But you see what Paul's saying? If you rely on that, you will die or you will die to it. He actually uses this same word. He says, whatever I considered profit, whatever I considered gain, I now consider, and the NIV and all these translations dumb the word down. They clean it up. I studied the New Testament scholars on this, and they said, this is not for shock value, but they said Paul actually put this in for shock value. He wanted to shock the religious system. He said it's all crap. There's even another word we could use and I'm not going to use here. He wants, you to, he wants you to be revolted by those things in comparison to Christ because Christ frees us from putting our identity in those things. They will not work. You either die to them now 
or at your deathbed, you have a eureka moment. All those things you put your faith and hope in, you go, oh, wow, huh, rubbish. Dung. No good. Didn't work. And if you do take that to your grave, God will give you what you ask for, a life apart from Christ. He actually uses, I debated with myself whether this is assonance or consonance, but in the Greek it says, to live is Christos, to die, kurdos. Saying, I want, I, want, I want you like my friend in the ICU, I want you just chewing on that statement. Why was it such gain? Look at verse 23. Paul says, when we depart this world, we will go and be with Jesus. He says, that is far better. How do you know you're really getting old? When you start saying that, you're like, I thought this was so good. It is nothing compared to Jesus. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that in comparison with Jesus, everything else is that word? And, and, and why is it so beautiful? Why is it such gain? It's not, it's not that, you know, we kind of get, we'll be with Jesus. You can go, well, that's just pie in the sky. It just kind of makes you feel better, get you through the day, right? No, 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 no. Have you ever studied Jesus? Have you ever watched how God in the flesh dealt with people? It's what one Puritan uh, writer said, has this chapter called, it's not a chapter, it's like a, like a heading. Jesus is winning and gaining disposition. His winning and gaining disposition. And he goes on to describe, he says, did you, did you ever pay attention to how he dealt with the disciples? Jesus, let's call down thunder. Guys, chill. That's not my kingdom. That's a paraphrase. But even with the Pharisees, yes, sometimes he could be tough with the Pharisees, but you know, Pharisees like, I got to do this, I got to do this, and you know, what about this? And he goes, you're so close to the kingdom. Come on, come on, keep coming. He wants people in the kingdom. Think about the way he dealt with women. I don't care how, many, how much we talk about women's rights today. If we continue to think of women like we think of them and how we plaster them everywhere, we don't think of women how Jesus thought and treated women. Women were drawn to him because he was so protective and secure and safe. Especially broken women. And broken people, his winning and gaining disposition. That's who we're going to be with. Let me ask a question. How do we know if, if that's sort of where we are now? This is not about meeting some standard that Paul had, but, but I do want, this is, as Marlon Jones says, this is a test. Like, think about your life now. And I just want to ask you two questions. Do you long to be with Jesus now? Do you long to 
be with him and just spend time with him? Or do you, do you look at your Bible as a list of rules and something you got to do today and kind of, okay, I'm going to mark this off the chest? Or are you like, no, this is a means of, of just sitting at Jesus' feet and, and receiving from this winning and gaining disposition God. You look at prayer as a chore and a list or as, as, a, as a person that you go to and you spill your guts to and you say, whatever's on your heart and you know they still love you and are sympathetic with you because Hebrews says they've been through every single thing known to man and woman. And you just want to commune with him. And, and I'm going to say this. This is the tough one here. I don't, I'm, I'm a, at heart, I don't want to offend anyone. Some of you don't believe that. But I know this season in the life of the church, it's not that you can hide behind that camera. You can act like you're behind that camera, and you're not. Because this is where you commune with Jesus. And if, and if you don't, let me just say it this way. You not only want to be with Jesus, but you want to be where Jesus is. And Jesus is especially with his people. And we realize that is very, very challenging right now. When all this started, one of my elders said, Preach, you're going to have to really emphasize the means of grace. Because there will be some people that are going to stay home, and they're going to feel like this. But there are also going to be people, like Murray said, that don't even try. They're just, they just drift. And that is, that's a challenge for us right now. Because Jesus is with his church. Look at verse 24. And we're going to kind of land the plane here in a second. But look at verse 24. Why did Paul want to stay? He said, I'd rather go and be with you, Jesus. A lot easier, a lot better, a lot more beautiful. That's where we're all headed. But he says, I know it's necessary that I stay here. Why? On your account, who is your? The church at Philippi. Convinced of this, that I'm going to stay here, I will remain, I'll continue with you. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith, so that in you, you, I'm sorry, where is it? We may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. See what Paul's saying. He's saying, this is the reason I would want to stay is for the church. I know that this can sound like uh, self-serving. Well, you're the pastor. Of course you've got to talk about the church is important. Paul's saying it. Paul's saying, show up for work days if you can safely. Show up for men's and women's ministry if you can safely. And if you can't, we'll figure out a way to keep you involved and connected to Jesus in the church. Because Paul's saying... This is where Jesus is making progress. See the word he uses? I want to remain for your progress. And what progress in particular? Joy. Joy. I told y'all several years ago when I went to my counselor the first time, I said, he's going to ask, why are you here? And he did. And I said, I don't have a lot of joy. And he said, we'll work on that. Jesus will get to that. Paul's concern that we do, we become less cynical 
less stoical, less joyless, less grumpy, less dour, less pessimistic. Because if you put your faith in all those things, you will go those routes. But he's saying, oh no, die to that rubbish. Put your faith in Jesus. Come back to him. And and notice just where we're going to end here. We're going to end where we began. His ultimate desire for the church is what his desire is. That they would have ample cause to what? Glory in Christ Jesus. And that word is loaded. You might say it's heavy. It's weighted. Because that's what the word means. But it also means in a real practical way. Something that is so weighty, so important, so beautiful, so lovely, so glorious, you just can't quit talking about it. The word is not boast in that sense, like brag, call attention to me. But it's, it's this overflow of what I love I share with other people. And Paul's concern while in prison is that very thing. He so glories in Christ that it overflows to the imperial guard. It's evangelism. It's evangelism. He wants wants them to glory in Christ so that it overflows to others. It's what theologians call doxological worship of God, evangelism. Let me just illustrate it like this and we'll close here. And I ask for permission for this because it's two of you. But sometimes, as I've said, social media can actually be kind of fun. And I was looking at Facebook the other day. And on Facebook, now this was actually real, on Facebook, Matthew and Caleb Benoit... Uh, had run a 5K. Okay, great. Ran a 5K. Any of you ran a 5K? But it was Kayla's first 5K. And she never thought she was going to run a 5K. And not only was the picture of her face radiant, but her husband's face, as he was looking at her, was just radiating with joy for her. He was glorying in, right? what she experienced. And Paul's saying, here is something substantial and eternal. We are overbuilt for this world. (laughs) That next world, being with Christ, absolutely is a weight of glory to us. And it should cause us to overflow with that glory to others. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that we have such such a, a wonderful, merciful Savior. Someone with such a gaining and winning disposition that He wanted us to be a part of the church. And He is committed to our progress and joy. God, as Paul longed for that for the church at Philippi, 
Lord, it's so easy for us, oh boy, just to put our joy elsewhere and to live for and find our glory in things that we ultimately know are broken. God, thank you that you have in so many beautiful ways made this a church that that does long for Christ's glory. We pray that that would continue and that that would increase and overflow as we enjoy Him together. It would overflow in, in doxological evangelism to others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.